there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. It's that time of the week again. We go advanced medicine every Monday evening on the East Coast. And Dr. Rasha Batar helps us get there. For those of you who are new to this show, or particularly advanced medicine version of it, Dr. Batar has been doing this for a long time. And he's got a book, and you'll see it over my left shoulder if you're watching on YouTube. It's an international bestseller called The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. And Dr. Batar, the reason I start there is because we do have acknowledged new listeners and watchers on the YouTube channel tonight. And I want them to gently get to know you, not run away in, in fear, because, you know, big guy intimidating, but you're, you're bringing the vitamin L everywhere you go. I like that. Not have them run away from fear. <laughs> no, in fact, you know, the people that should be running away are the bad guys, you know, the the uh, vaccine religionist, if you will. And I, I opened up last hour, the first hour of the show tonight, Dr. Batar, with another dagnam colored ribbon, right? Every day there's another ribbon raising awareness for something. And it's not that I'm against awareness, but when it is raising awareness, for instance, what disease is it today? They call it epilepsy. And it's like, oh, it's all the brain. No t- discussion of microbiome, no discussion of heavy metals, no, yeah, none of that. And every day it's like we have normalized chronic disease to the point where we celebrate ribbons of them and there's not enough colors in the rainbow to catch them all. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, really interesting how they do it. It's almost like it's a, it's a uh, strategy to make money. And they're harnessing on the emotions of individuals they know those individuals are susceptible. They may have a family member that is suffering from that type of a disease process. Breast cancer awareness is a perfect example. Yeah, the pink um, ribbon. Affected yeah. so many, the pink ribbon, yeah. And uh, then they harness that. Of course, nothing has ever changed. And, uh, I mean, from a standpoint of awareness, I guess it's good to have an awareness thing. But then we need to ask for donations, which is invariably the next step, right? It's like one yeah. following by two. It's always awareness week, donate money for this cause. And, of course, it never goes for anything that's going to benefit anybody. So it's Yeah, well, if it's for the cure, as you, you bring up the uh, reference point of pink ribbons in breast cancer, it's about radiation, surgery, um, exactly. you know, oncological interventions, chemotherapy. So if we look at, for instance, Epilepsy Day, no discussion of the microbiome, even though the scientific journals rife with information about links between epileptic seizures and gut microbiome disruption. Of course, we also know if heavy metals play a role in brain and neurological act, electrical activity, whether it's proper or improper. No discussion of that, no research into that. And it's like, hey, what, what drug can we come up with now that you're aware of epilepsy? What are you going to do? By the way, Sanjay Gupta, neurosurgeon at CNN, says, well, have you looked into hemp and CBD? Not a mention of that. So it's not like we don't know of options to, to bring about natural, safe remediation, if not outright reversals. But the, the main focus, as you said, it's one, awareness, two, give us money. Yeah. And unfortunately, there will be those that will allow their emotions to be manipulated. And I'll tell you, sometimes I've done the same thing without even realizing that I was falling mm-hmm. uh, into their 
proverbial trap, but if you feed the um, if you feed that machine, then it's continuing down and there's a cascade of events that takes place. But I think more and more people are realizing that those cascades that have taken place over over the last few decades, they haven't increased any anything of significance, any cure rate, any um, uh, decrease in the, the morbidity associated with those disease processes. Um, and I think more and more people are now becoming aware. So we see this just like when we talked about those kids. Remember, instead of going to the uh, Disney World or the oh, yes. Disney World of Depression, and, and they wanted to come and see us at the Natural Health at Expo. the Health Freedom Expo years ago. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So the awareness, even in the younger generation, is becoming more and more keen. They're starting to realize and recognize uh, kids read their uh, labels, for example. I mean, you know, your kids do, my kids do. They actually pick up labels and they read the labels of the drinks, making sure there's no sucralose in there. They're picking yeah. up um, boxes of whatever and making sure that there's, no, there's so many ingredients that they don't. My kids at least know that if they don't know two ingredients or more, they're not yeah. going to eat anything from there. Now, of course, Rahan and Navi both, they know what EDTA is, so they know that's, that has another ingredient to it. Right. You know, so they'll say, is, uh, what is EDTA, Dad? And I'll say, that's ethylene diamine, you know, EDTA, ethylene diamine, patricidic acid. Oh, okay, okay. So they know. So they're learning a little bit of uh, the terminology. So if it's familiar to them and they know what it is, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is more children in our generation, our, our children, are yeah. recognizing this. I've got a, two other friends of mine. One's a physician and one's a you got, yeah. attorney. And they're becoming more aware. They're just Well, the, if the parents become conscious, they can actually teach the kids because you yeah. know they're not learning this in school. you got school kids marching in Washington, D.C. to have their rights removed from them, right? The, the yeah. firearms issue, Second Amendment. My son, you know, Elijah, was in uh, New York last week for his senior high school trip. And, you know, they're in Times Square, packed wall-to-wall people, local lady, New Yorker, uh, you know, ask him, are you going to go march with the kids for the gun thing? He says, no, I want to be a gunsmith. I don't believe in in uh, uh, background checks like you do. And she says, oh, you must want to have children be killed with firearms. She's like, how did you leap from what I said to that? What, what makes you think I want to see kids? I mean, so there's a lot of absurdity out there at the same time. We do have some, like our kids, that are raised with some level of, uh, of intellectual engagement in these, uh, you know, maybe principal discussions. Yes, they can be heated and emotional, but rooted in principle rather than rooted in just pure emotion to remove you from your rights or your money. Well, it, it, you know, how about that? Uh, a uh, how, how old is Elijah? 17 or 18? 18 now, yeah. 18, yeah. So how about an 18-year-old calling out an adult for being an idiot? How do you <laughs> yeah. make that leap from... From going that I believe in the Second Amendment to I want kids killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and he went to the Bronx Zoo, and one of the zookeeper guys asking him what he wanted to do after college. Are you going to college? He's like, no, I want to be a gunsmith. And the guy says to him, I don't believe anybody should have guns. I'm like, where, you know, people that don't understand the right for self, to self-defense is a right that comes from God, from our creator, not from government. And then you have generations now marching on Washington, please take away our right to, to self-defense. And they have no earthly idea, principally, what they're arguing for. And this doesn't mean that people who defend the Second Amendment want children to be killed. That's, you know, an absurdity in response to them not perceiving that removing all guns is somehow going to be protective of kids. Yeah, I don't remember the exact quote, but I was talking about this over the weekend. I was at a conference in Orlando, actually, and um, it was really an outstanding conference. I was an attendee, and um, it was 
very exhilarating to be around this group of people. Um, and I thought it was actually going to be kind of cool because nobody would recognize me. But, of course, by the second day, a couple of people did. And mm-hmm. I was asked to autograph a couple of books and everything. That was kind of cool. And it, it, was, yeah. it was just really a gr- great group of people. But what I found interesting was this topic came up about uh, gun rights. And, of course, I went to my my standard answer. You know, I think we should um, outlaw spoons because uh, it cause obesity and um, uh, similar to guns causing gun violence. And, you know, there was the appropriate response. Everybody laughed. And we were talking about um, those individuals. And there was a quote that I remember from college. I can't exactly remember how it goes. But mm-hmm. the essence of it is there's nothing as pathetic as an individual who cries out against others who's it's talking about military, okay, against, mm-hmm. it cries out against those whose sacrifice allows them in the first place, to voice their opinions, right? Now, in other words, you've got Party A and Party B. Party A is crying out against Party B, yet Party B, it's their sacrifice, and they're putting their lives lives in the line that allow Party A, in the first place, to have the right to speak out against mm-hmm. Party B. Yeah, the freedom right? to speak so, out, yeah. The freedom to speak out, right. So, so what we're talking about here is those that talk about, talk about taking away guns, the Second Amendment, mm-hmm. They don't seem to understand that our ability to voice our freedom comes directly from our right to bear arms. And if that were, God forbid, to be taken away from us, we would single-handedly be handing over every right, every privilege, every uh, autonomy that we have been given by the Constitution, we would be giving it away. And even people in other countries recognize this. I had a conversation with a with a gentleman from Scotland about four years ago, and he said to me, four years ago, Robert, he said, I hope you people in the United States realize what's going on and don't give up your weapons. Because if you give it up, if the U.S. gives up, if the U.S. citizens give up their rights to bear arms, we are all down the toilet because it's the last freehold in the planet. Yeah. This weekend I met a a nice lady from Russia originally, the old Soviet Union. She emigrated in 1988 with her family. Uh, she has a child my daughter's age. They got together, and she was telling us the same story, the same visual, because they've lived through tyranny and communism. And, you know, during the Obama years, she's here in America going, don't you people see what's happening here? <laughs> you know, as they were fawning over Obama, not recognizing the things that he stood for were anything but, uh, you know, the freedom, right, right, to keep in bearance these things. Of course, we still have them. Even when the government takes them away, we still have those rights, but those rights have been violated by those that were held in, well, the regard that we're supposed to defend those rights. Because the highest ideal, and, and this is where, you know, Trump and everybody gets it a little bit wrong, too. Their, their first uh, role, if you will, their first job is not to defend Americans. It's to defend the Constitution. Americans are to defend themselves. Yes, we have a military to defend us for those reasons in those times and those places where it is appropriate. The people's house should be the area where the wars are declared. But we, we can go into a lot of that history. I don't want to belabor that point. But for goodness sake, kids that are, you know, basically marching on D.C. demanding that the government take away the rights to defend themselves or my right to defend myself and my family. I don't care how emotionally distraught you are about any school shooting. I'm compassionate. I don't want to see any school kids get shot. That is not the point. But the point is, it doesn't matter how emotionally distraught you are about people's right to keep and bear arms. I am not giving up my right to defend myself and my family because you don't feel good about that. That is something that is not negotiable. 
Robert, I completely agree with you. And I think it's really, I don't blame the kids. I actually blame their parents because they haven't encouraged them to really understand what this is. They haven't studied history. They haven't been educated properly. And again, they're becoming victims uh, to, the, to the system. Yeah, very true. Well, advanced medicine is going to help you get out of that. Next segment, we're going to talk about how doctors are doing some pretty dumb things, but they've been doing it for over 100 years for a very specific reason. But now some of the medical students are pointing it out and going, hey, what about us? Um, Can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. Robert Scott Belcher. Scott Belcher. Well, now we have it. It takes 108 years for doctors to figure out that their curriculum is lacking. 108 years since 1910, the Flexner Report of 1910. Although, I don't know the UK version of the Flexner Report when it happened. But sometime in the 20th century, in modern medicine, they stopped teaching nutrition. If they ever did, we won't get into that. But they started teaching exclusively petrochemical patent medicines as a solution to everything. Everything is a drug deficiency disease. Now, out of England, headline reads, we learn nothing about nutrition, claim medical students. This is off the BBC. Medical students say they currently learn almost nothing about the way diet and lifestyle affect health, and they should be taught more. Dagnemit, we want to learn nutrition, too. Dr. Bittar, what's going on? These students are getting wind of nutrition before they even go into medical school. Well, I think that, again, the awareness, if we, were to, if we were to plot awareness in the general public, I think that we would see an exponential rise. It would be like almost a vertical line in the last probably five, six years, and probably if you go back 15 years, it's been a consistently increasing parabolic that is now being reflected in the educational system because people are demanding, like the people going to medical school, are demanding more um, awareness or demanding more towards nutrition because of the awareness has led them to that point. Um, You can just look at the regular uh, stock market, for example. You can see the shares of Amazon, for example, when they start getting to the food industry and how there's more demand for organic um, natural produce, so even like Walmart and Target carry natural mm-hmm. produce, and they carry uh, organic local farmers. You know, supply these areas, uh, these stores, and so there's a there's a greater awareness of what you take into your body. Even though Big Pharma is the one that's promoting all the big ads and the five hundred thousand dollar commercials for thirty seconds during you know prime time but people are becoming more and more aware. And yes, that's the yes. key. There is a medical doctor, uh, I believe Indian descent, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and I actually met him. I know him personally when I was at a medical conference I spoke at with, uh, um, who was I with out there from the Tahoma Clinic? Dr. Jonathan Wright in England a couple of years back. And he's uh, telling. he says the health landscape of the UK has dramatically changed over the last 30, 40 years. And he says, I think the bulk of what I see as a GP now, almost 80%, is in some way driven by our collective lifestyles. Again, he's a doctor who gets it and is working more toward nutritional options. Again, the the, the, the unfortunate thing is for the doctors there or and most everywhere, they're not learning it unless they come out of medical school and, and go 
to extra lengths to learn it. And they're saying, hey, why isn't it in our curriculum now while we're in medical school? Yeah, and this is a very important point because people have been doing it all along, right? They've, they've been doctors all along before I was even born that were out of the box. Um, I learned this stuff on my own by going to conferences. When I say on my own, I went to conferences where like-minded individuals gathered. And there are many of these organizations. They have different slants and different belief systems, but there are many different organizations that are outside of the box. And more and more uh, medical students and healthcare providers are becoming oriented towards this awareness. So just right now, if you look at uh, Earth Fair and uh, Whole Foods, there was no Earth Fair and Whole Foods and what, 15 years ago? Did you hear about Whole Foods then? Well, yeah, I, it, I've been in it for a long time. But, yeah, if you go back far enough, they no, were no, I mean, the far actual, between. I mean the actual stores, like Whole Foods. Yeah, no, no, no. But but you got to understand, if you go 15 years, we got to go back further than that. When I started eating this way, yeah, there was only a Mrs. Gooch's, which was the precursor to Whole Foods. Uh, but you're going way back to have the mom and pop, the cooperatives. It was more like 60s hippies, bean sprouts, and tofu. To see right. where it's gone, where you can get organic Pop-Tarts and lemonade. You know, it's, it's a whole different realm. But think about this, Dr. Batar. If these medical schools actually do nutritional education on the curriculum, that's going to crowd out all the drug training. I think they're going to be, there's going to be pushback against that because the entire modus operandi of the MDD degree is about drugging once you get out. Yeah, but there's more and more awareness within the doctors. See, that's the thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, there's a certain critical mass, right? And you hit that tipping point, there's no going back. And I think we're approaching that in probably in the next five years. Um, those schools that are not teaching nutrition will end up suffering by not having the same matriculation rate as other schools. Yeah. Again, it's going to be an interesting battle in the years to come because of what the Flexner Report you know, what transpired after that, with it, which is a totally petrochemical focus. It's pathology. It's not nutrition and health and healing. And so what happens when the doctors demand education that is in opposition to the mainstay of what over 100 years of training has been? It's going to be a battle royale within allopathic medicine. But I think in the end, nutrition is going to win because the people are going to see the doctors who are learning nutrition or the non-doctors who know nutrition better than the doctors who get none. And I think freedom demands it, and I'm, I'm cool with that. But I'd like the doctors to know more nutrition. We got more advanced medicine with Dr. Batar after this. Live around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell. Willing to go where the truth takes him, here's Robert. All right, so if we have a strategy and we think like an allopathic doctor, okay, we haven't outgrown our allopathic training, our horse blinders, pharmaceutical horse blinders. We think, all right, how do we prevent chronic diseases from happening? How do we prevent, like, neurological degradations from happening? You know, one of the, the really nasty, sneaky ways they go about it is like, well, we'll give you a drug that has nothing to do with it or maybe marginally has something to do with it. And we give that enough early on. Maybe you won't live long enough to get that disease. And if you think I'm being cynical by saying that, there is a doctor, uh, where is this guy, in Canada? I think he's in Canada. He says, yeah, he's a neuroscientist in Canada. He says, take daily ibuprofen and you will not get Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Rashid Bittar, is there another reason why Alzheimer's wouldn't happen in a case like that other than the fact that 
there would be other damaging effects earlier on that might not allow you to live long enough to get Alzheimer's? Am I being too cynical with that one? Uh, no, because if you don't have kidneys and you've got kidney failure due to the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory chronic usage of it, uh, you won't have to worry about Alzheimer's because <laughs> you won't be around to deal or, with that. Or is, I mean, or is renal hemodialysis, is that a cure for Alzheimer's? I mean, destroy your kidneys beyond hemodialysis, and does that cure Alzheimer's? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't even know why they want to cure Alzheimer's at that point, because you don't want the person to remember the fact that they're on dialysis. Well, yeah, they can't get up and do anything. I know. My dad, you know, suffered seven years, seven, I'm sorry, seven months of hemodialysis, and he quit. He says, like, I'm done, and, and he was done, and he was over. But so Alzheimer's life... may be beneficial in that case, then. Yeah, but uh, really, this is a neuroscientist with a straight face, say, and it's weird because the picture of him is like before stained glass, looks like he's in some kind of church or maybe a, a, a royal kind of thing. He's out of Vancouver, and he's actually trying to argue that if we would just have everybody take ibuprofen, but... Remind everybody why ibuprofen is not like a, a multivitamin in, in terms of its health benefits. What is he thinking here? Well, actually, so this will be a good thing to kind of just review very quickly. It's, it's not that complicated, but there's um, when you take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, you basically inhibit prostaglandins and you cause a disruption in the uh, in the cascade. The, the is an inhibition. Uh, well, actually, there's an inhibition of many different things, but the bottom line is that you end up causing uh, increased propensity for the gut to become susceptible to um, ulcers. You cause uh, more strain in your kidneys. You cause um, liver issues. You basically create a mini-assault on multiple organs, the most significant of which are the kidneys, and the gut, and then, of course, liver. So the gut and liver is not as, it's, it's pretty bad, but the, the big one is the kidney. That's the one that you're going to... Particularly, I, ibuprofen has a more aggressive uh, toxicity to the kidney, to renal tissue. Right, exactly. Okay. So um, there's a whole cascade, but without, without going into the chemistry of it, which I haven't you know, reviewed in quite some time, but it's, it's pretty basic. The inhibition of the prostaglandin is what creates this whole cascade in this creates uh, mass chaos. Mm -hmm. um, if a person needs to take a non-steroidal, first of all, any to me, if somebody's going to take non-steroidal, no more than seven days, and anybody, any doctor that says, oh, you need to be on this chronically, you should find yourself another doctor because there's no right. justification for any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to be used for more than seven days. I know that, Robert, you would disagree that there's no reason to use anything, and well, I would probably, yeah. at this point in my career, agree with you. But if, you know, they, if they, we have other options, right? Because I recognize why they're prescribed. I get that, right? It's not that I'm speaking out against that reality. And if the doctors and others don't know, but uh, too often I, I, I say people fall prey to the easy. Oh, I'll just grab one of those and not looking at the other options that are available, uh, you know, to right. get them. Again, there's not that there's never a place. I've never been an ab absolutist except occasionally when, what do you, the Super Don calls me the dark Sith Lord if I become too absolute about something. And, and, and the thing is that you've got good reason to have that uh, stance because you suffered a lot when you were younger. Mm. Uh, and you've I've seen that many it. people that have, yeah, you've been through it. You've seen other people go through it. So, you know, when you look at things like, um, um, what, what is the homeopathic? Uh, uh, the like Ar Arnica, Montana, for Arnica, instance? Arnica, yeah. thank you, Arnica. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So you've even got like conventional surgeons, a lot of them. Yeah. Some of them, friends of mine that I, I didn't even talk to you about this, and I remember one of the plastic surgeons here locally that um, I had a patient that went to him and she came back and told me that she had been prescribed Arnica before the surgery. And I was amazed. And I called him and he said, yeah, I've been doing that for years. So this is a, this is a conventional doc, mm-hmm. you know, a plastic surgeon, but he says, I just see so much uh, better response in my patients postoperatively when I give them the Arnica. Yes. So there are, there are many, many things that will work as a anti-inflammatory, um, not that, not that, uh, Arnica is necessarily acting as an anti-inflammatory, but it does have an anti-inflammatory component to it. There's other aspects to it, too. But right. there are many other things a person can do to uh, to decrease that inflammatory cascade. My point is, regardless of whether somebody's an absolutist or not, a purist mm-hmm. or not, I happen to be a purist, but in this particular case, I don't have a problem prescribing somebody uh, an anti-inflammatory for a few days. Understanding that as soon as you, a patient starts to rely on something for more than seven days, now you're causing micro-assaults on a daily basis, which become macro-assaults yes. uh, to the kidneys, to the liver, to the gut, and you're going to end up having all sorts of problems. There's no reason to do it, especially when there's so many other natural things that you can take that right. can um, do just as good, if not better, response to reduced inflammation. And remember Ty Bollinger's buddy, Irv Sani, Dr. Sani? Mm-hmm. He, he's, a, a P, I think, an orthopedic surgeon, and he's, like, relying on, on Arnica and these things. So, again, it's these surgeons that, that have learned about it, interestingly enough. And, you know, I, I'm more uh, prone to say I really appreciate doctors who can do extraordinary surgery to do things that are, you know, seemingly miraculous, although they're allopathic interventions to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's amazing to me. But then the healing process, I've always said, as soon as you can get out of the hospital, get, because everything else that they do is tending to, unfortunately, compound uh, uh, toxicity in the body, which is not good for prolonged recovery or accelerated recovery. Like you said, with Arnica, we not only get some of the similar benefits of NSAIDs, but we don't have any of the compounded toxicity, the liver, digestive system, the kidneys, etc. So, you, you know, it's not just that you're not assaulting the body, but you're actually accelerating the recovery, and that's what these surgeons are reporting which is great news. Right. And you can look at, uh, you know, this goes back 20, 30 years ago, even when cigarette smoking was considered a normal thing. Surgeons didn't want their patients smoking because they knew that their chances of recovery from surgery were, that it was riddled with complications, wound dehiscence, you know, uh, mm-hmm. taking longer time to, to um, for the wounds to close, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, uh, proper nutrition. Somebody who's had better nutrition would heal faster with less rates of complication, with less infection rates, etc. you know, with less wound mm-hmm. dehiscence. So these are all aspects, if you start looking at it from a surgical perspective, people that took in less toxicity electively and people that actually uh, had better nutrition always recovered faster from the surgeries. Again, not rocket science, you know. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're a natural, I believe in natural healing or not natural healing. The surgeons, we knew it decades ago because we saw the response in patients when they were put under duress, i.e. Mm-hmm. surgery. Yeah, so in this case, this neurosurgeon is saying that they've detected something in saliva, a beta-42 levels, A-B-E-T-A levels, and somehow if they put them on ibuprofen, they reduce them. But again, well, you're... T- all surgeons, all surgeons besides this neurosurgeon. Yeah, uh, yeah, this guy. It's like, <laughs> you know, I get it. You, you can lower a, a level that's like an end-stage indication of something. But if you negate or neglect to understand what it's going to do downstream to a, a system of elimination, the excretory organs, 
that you, you're, you're positing something that's an absurdity because nobody with a decreased renal function is going to be benefited in terms of preventing a disease, any disease, including Alzheimer's. Now, they may be getting it anyway because they're so filled with mercury and aluminum, but there's no discussion of that in this case. It's only about, hey, let's get them on ibuprofen every day, forever, and we're going to argue that that's going to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's because they've measured some end stage in the saliva level of a beta or a beta 42. Yeah, and so the first thing I want to know is show me a patient population where they've been on uh, ibuprofen for the last uh, five years or ten years and that prevented um, getting Alzheimer's. That's the first thing, which, of course, they can't do because that's a perfect study that nobody's done that. And secondly, it's like when you isolate a whole food component and then you extrapolate that uh, taking that component of that whole food Mm -hmm. will cause you to have a certain response where when you do that, you you don't see the same result. Why? Yeah. Because there are certain synergistic uh, benefits and certain synergistic components that occur when you take the whole food component as opposed to that isolated uh, unit, which you will not experience that benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, so in vivo versus in vitro makes a big difference. In vivo is how yeah. it works inside the body, inside the cell, whereas in vitro is how it works in the Petri dish. Yeah, exactly. All right, Dr. Dr. Patel, I just wanted to switch gears to talk about the kids again. Uh, in, in this case, uh, psychiatric disorders that they say they focus on the brain. They don't talk necessarily microbiome, even though it's in the peer-reviewed literature. We have a police officer uh, watching us on YouTube right now. Uh, Mr. Hayes is there, and he says when we arrest juveniles, we have to fill out a medical checklist. At least two thirds of those juveniles they arrest are on ADHD or psych drugs. And he says, nobody's talking about how these medical drugs are affecting this school-to-prison pipeline. And, of course, as we talk about the school shootings associated with it, and we have a cop that is acknowledging two-thirds of these kids are on some form of psychotropic medication. Yeah, I mean, I bet you that every one of these school shootings, those people were on some type of a drug. And I think somebody published something about that, didn't they? And one of the- over, over 90% since 1999, yeah. Columbine, over 90%. And this article says well over 8 million U.S. children are now on psychiatric drugs. This is an abject failure of psychiatric modern medicine. I mean, it's, an, it's a total failure. They, they don't talk to... Yeah, I, That's an oxymoron, because by, when you said the failure of psychiatric medicine, by definition, is no offense meant to the psychiatric, the psychiatric physicians out there, but... You know, wow. a lot of a lot of psychiatric doctors. It's interesting become functional doctors and natural doctors or integrative doctors. It's true. Yeah, I know. We know some of them together. They've left that field in in the way that has been trained, and they're doing some really holistic and integrative work because they've realized the failure of that teaching. As bad as we've talked about certain aspects of allopathic medicine, that now could be considered one of the worst, especially the way they are drugging children. Children, for goodness' sake. There's no blood test, saliva test, hair t- There's no test that says, oh, my gosh, yes, Ritalin, we need Ritalin here. Yes, we need uh, Prozac, uh, Z- Zoloft, Paxil, Xanax. None of it. But it, these kids are on it. They're being arrested. They're violent. They're suicidal. And whether they were there beforehand, they become that afterwards. All right, Advanced Medicine, one more segment. Great discussion here with Dr. Rasha Bittar. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. You can go to the archives, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of archives going way back many years now. Go to medicalrewind.com, advancedmedicine.com, of course, right here at robertscottbell.com as well. And for those of you watching on YouTube, the animation just keeps on going. We've got one more segment to wrap it up with Dr. Rasha Bittar after this break. Who'd you say that masked man was? It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Robert Scott Bell. Here I come to save the day! 
Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Do you love your kids enough not to drug them? Right? One of these kids learned to take drugs. I learned it from you, Dad. Right? They watch what you do. Kids are smart. Do you love yourself enough not to drug yourself into oblivion? Not to treat every symptom or emotion as a drug deficiency of some kind? Final segment of the day here with Dr. Rasha Bittar, Advanced Medicine on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Headline reads at Medical News Today, Why Self-Love is Important and How to Cultivate It. Dr. Bittar, is this a silly story or an important story? I personally think that self-love is a very important aspect that we have to understand as a society because it's hard for somebody to love another person if they don't love themselves. Now, I know that sounds kind of silly, but look at the divorce rates. Look at the look at the uh, the violence um, that we talk about. Look at the um, dysfunction in many of the family units. So we could really lump this all together and say that it all starts from a place of lack of self-love. Mm-hmm. And self-love basically means self-acceptance, accepting yourself. Uh, for what it is, and I, no matter what I say, it's going to sound like a metaphysical foo-foo, uh, <laughs> and it's not really, we can't really justify um, the subject in such a short period of time, but this all comes back to that there are memories that we all have, those memories are associated with certain emotions, and when we have that memory, it elicits an emotion, and that emotion actually triggers a physical, physiological, measurable response in the brain, and when it does that, it elicits a whole cascade of uh, of events, some neurochemistry related, some physiological related, but they, it's measurable. You can actually see this on MRI scan. So if we can turn off that emotion that's associated with that memory, you can't stop a memory, but we can manipulate the emotion. If we can turn off the emotion, mm-hmm. then an individual can start beginning this process of self-love and appreciating themselves for who they are, in which um, the next step would be then they will start to learn to accept other people for who they are. And and love and love is the key to everything. We know that. Yeah, we were. Yeah, the hippie thing. We were we were kind of la- laughing at the absurdity of uh, like a Atlanta-based medical group breathing in cancer and breathing out prevention. You know, and talk about promotion of the the HPV shot. There's an interesting quote here uh, by Professor Kristen Neff uh, in this article about self-love. He he or she 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 says self-kindness is more important than becoming a good meditator, interestingly enough, right? Self-kindness, how interesting. Yeah, well, you know, when we said self-love, and I use the word uh, accepting, that's really what it comes down to, is being kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. Because we are not kind to ourselves. I mean, I've noticed myself, I'll do something, and I'm getting all spectacular, but I'm beating myself up because I could have done a little bit better. It's like, wait a second, why why are you doing that? And then there's this self-talk, and I've noticed myself, I beat myself up, and I know that, Everybody, mm-hmm. my patients, especially cancer patients, they have a, a, a lot of issues where they're, they're, they've already been ingrained from childhood, from you know, either parents that didn't have a yeah. positive outlook towards the kids, or whatever the case is. We have to learn to start from the basics, and the basic is first accepting yourself um, and, mm-hmm. and being kind to yourself, and that is then going to convert into loving yourself, and now you can actually extend that same emotion to others. You can't love somebody else if you don't know how to love yourself. It's just a yeah. bottom. You can't do anything to somebody else unless you know how to do it yourself. I, I've heard that there are some parents out there that, that have tried to teach their kids like a 10-second rule, right? If you screw up, you do something bad, you look at yourself, you're, you get down on yourself, you get mad at yourself, and, and the dad says, you got 10 seconds, and then you, you get over it. 
You know, and now you, you just do it differently, do it better, do something. But, you know, to not wallow in it. Because there are, yeah, a lot of people have brought from childhood the, the self-loathing based on messages that were given to them. Whether it be inadvertently through parental authoritarian figures or friends or peer or other people that they perceive to be authority. And, you know, some people it embeds. Other people it bounces off of them. I don't know what the difference is. You know, is it the nutritional makeup of a child? Uh, you know, what other factors could there be? I mean, this is where you go, man, I've got two kids. They're radically different. They've been raised pretty much the same way in the same family. And, you know, each soul has its unique attributes. And, you know, like we've talked about strengths and weaknesses, body type, typology, recognizing our individual and how do we respond individually appropriately to that child? Because that child reacts differently to them than the other child. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is uh, important for parents to recognize the biological individuality um, in their children or the, indi- the, the, the genetic uniqueness. Each human being is genetically unique, but now we've got uniqueness within these ch- uh, children and appreciating that and catering to that. And this comes back to how people learn as well. Some yeah. people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners. And this is all going to help to make sure that we appreciate the uniqueness of, people, of our kids. Yeah, and I'll say this, what's common to all body types and different souls that come onto this planet, there's nobody suffering from a drug deficiency disease or a vaccine deficiency. But certainly there are nutrient deficiencies and there is love, vitamin L deficiencies. We want to fill that gap here on the Robert Scott Bell Show with Dr. Rasha Bittar each and every week doing advanced medicine. Why? Dr. Bittar, tell him. Because the power to heal is unequivocally yours. The Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. 